Welcome. You are listening to the Your Crazy Professor, but it might just work, amazing podcast. Episode 23. Furlough. Furlough. It's a short word with huge implications. It's been in the news a lot lately. But what are the worries for those who find themselves suddenly placed on a leave of absence like this? It's no doubt a massive source of stress for many working people right now. But let's look at the bigger implications of being furloughed. Being furloughed is a source of stress. Obvious reasons for this acute and potentially chronic stress is the immediate reduction in circumstances that will happen upon being furloughed and having to make economies and prepare for tougher times ahead. In addition to those pressing concerns will be fears about not paying bills and falling into the trap of debt. Debt and being unable to get out of it have been shown to be one of the leading causes behind deaths of despondency, which is those fatalities attributed to reduced life circumstances, such as suicide and substance abuse or dependency. For some, the term furloughed may even become something they feel ashamed of and indicated that their job or profession was not essential enough to be salvaged. It will feel raw and unfair for many right now. And it might be this case for some time to come. A source of stress for the furloughed is the uncertainty of what will happen next in terms of employment. For some who may be financially okay for the foreseeable future, being furloughed may represent an enforced freedom from working or even an opportunity to try something different. However, this may be a very comfortable middle-class take on the situation, and most working people will not see this as a time of self-reflection and skill expansion. They will be desperate times. Most people who are furloughed will not have such financial security, nor be able to view it as a, as a thing with positive aspects to their lives. Furloughing is brutal. People genuinely do not like changing their lives. Uncertainty can be one of the biggest sources of stress and discomfort for workers. And when that change is enforced and people have no consultation about it, well, the negative effects associated with it can be even more impactful and more pronounced. Change is difficult and enforced change is doubly so. What is key here is keeping a positive psychological outlook. Put simply, people can either look down or they can look up. Experts say that optimism and an ability to try and take control of any situation, rather than giving up and being a passive agent, is associated with better outcomes and more positive resolution in difficult circumstances. But what about staying mentally healthy without the structure of work? There's no doubt that work and the structure it requires from us is generally a positive aspect to our daily health and well-being. Studies of disease and mortality repeatedly show that having work and employment is a cause of longer and healthier living. However, not all work is so healthful and some dangerous and dirty outsourced operations are often associated with occupational diseases and greater mortality and morbidity. 
One thing that can generally be said about the links between employment and health is that the worst kind of job to have is no job. However, for those who are undertaking meaningless or dirty and difficult jobs, the absence of that work in their lives may actually lead to immediate improvements in their health, such as a reduction in musculoskeletal pains and disorders, or respiratory health, and even psychological improvements in those people who had extremely demanding or stressful jobs. One of the positives we're seeing here is the possibility that individual workers may realise that their working patterns and behaviours that have been ingrained in how they do their work on a daily basis can now be challenged and possibly changed for the better. I think it will be rare to meet anyone who says they're actually missing the daily commute to work. And thousands of organisations have had working from home and virtual meetings forced upon them, and there's a good chance that many of these organisations will have resisted flexible working up until now. They may now see ways of working more efficiently and with greater worker satisfaction for employees too. Some visionaries have suggested that the traditional face-to-face meeting could now be on the way out and a sea change of flexible working will happen. Although the death of the traditional meeting is probably premature, there will be much more freedom in how workplaces will decide to do the work that they do. Other experts have even predicted that we could see the return of half-day closing, or even the four-day week, as organisations see the multiple benefits of not having staff on the premises five days a week, and of staff having more time to themselves. These benefits would include reduced running costs, happier workers, fewer sickness absence, reduced staff turnover, reduced environmental impact, and reduced staff car parking requirements. These are but a few. Interestingly, some economists have calculated that if some organisations close their operations for half a day each week, and any lost revenue or productivity will be compensated, compensated by a reduction in those costs associated with a stressed out workforce, such as sickness absence, peripatetic costs, replacement and recruitment costs, and consultancy fees. A happy workforce with more freedom and flexibility will be a healthier and more loyal workforce. Scandinavian companies have known this for several years and have taken advantage of the benefits of relaxed operations. Individuals are usually able to impose the right amount of structure into their own routines that they may need, no more and no less. And both of those who are working from home and those who have been furloughed will benefit from some routine in their daily lives. Nothing excessive, but just enough to give meaning to those days. Personal hygiene, of course, is a necessity, and more so than ever before, given current issues of transmission and cross-infection. Our Victorian forebears viewed the day as being made of eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure, and eight hours of rest, and there's no reason why this vague structure cannot be applied to what we're doing when we're stuck at home. Work can be applied to paid employment, voluntary work, going back into work, or even developing hobbies and skills and undertaking maintenance work about the home. Aristotle declared that all work absorbs and distracts the mind, 
And this shows the importance of keeping busy and keeping ourselves challenged. Domestic tasks like shopping, cooking, preparing food and even laundry are activities that can keep people busy and distracted. When people are busy working, they've less time to worry about all their sources of stress and distress. The human mind is very good at finding ways to amuse itself and to keep active. If the work does not actually feel like work, then that's a good sign that the brain is finding it stimulating, useful and challenging. Rest, we say, makes one rusty, and rest and rustiness is to be avoided. Exercise and physical exertion, even if only derived from cleaning the house or mundane domestic chores, is much better than inactivity, and such activity gives essential benefits to our immune system functioning. So what about the question of financial stress? Well, the worst thing to do, of course, is to ignore any financially difficult situation and hope that it will resolve itself, as they rarely do, and inattention leads to compounded difficulties. Acknowledging that there may be a financial problem is the first step in assessing the size and impact that it could cause, and that's the rational thing to do. Many individuals who are struggling financially or are recovering from the impacts of debt have said that they wish they'd asked for help sooner and had not left it until almost too late to get assistance in their own debt management. This is a common theme, it would seem. Government assistance for individuals and businesses should be accessed without delay where possible. Those who have a finite amount of funds should take action now while they can and not wait until those funds are nearly depleted. Obvious advice, really, but we do not always behave in obvious or logical ways, even if we know we should. Creditors should be contacted sooner rather than later to try and make arrangements. Mortgage companies can be asked for payment holidays. Just cancelling a direct debit or automatic mortgage payment will only make things worse in the long run. Utility companies can be negotiated with and their source of emergency funds can be asked for by customers. Although it should be noted that many customers may need to ask for these funds as they will not always be made aware of them by the utility company itself. Taking action and trying to deal with financial issues may not always work or they may only help to reduce the financial difficulties somewhat but the action of doing something rather than nothing will be a psychological benefit. Many charities have undertaken surveys of those who found themselves in serious debt and they've consistently concluded that the health impacts of living with debt and not managing such debt can be huge, including reduced sleeping, reduced quality of sleep, generally lower mood and poor immune system functioning, all of which are essential to maintain for our own health. These active behaviours are all adaptive. Taking stock of a situation and trying to tackle it in a practical way is good. The worst kind of response to have to financial worries is unfortunately the most human way of trying to cope. Excessive drinking, eating and general substance misuse. All of them are short-term distractions, but they do not really improve the situation in the same way that active behaviours can. Now let's look at suicidal death and difficulties. 
Some experts are suggesting that we're likely to see a significant increase in the suicide rate as a result of the pandemic and the lockdown process. It's too early to see if this is happening because of the way the Office of National Statistics collect coronal data about suicide deaths. What we can say with confidence is that suicide is a multi-factor complex end-stage behaviour and people rarely take their own life due to just one thing causing them distress or problems. It's also a condition that does not just impact those at the bottom of society, but that everyone is vulnerable, not just those with fewer options open to them. In the vast majority of cases of suicidal death, two things are invariably present. First, there's often a complex array of problems going on in the background that include many of the following, such as financial pressures, job concerns, relationship issues, recent bereavement, employment problems and difficult social circumstances. Secondly, there is the perception from the the suicidant that their situation is hopeless and that no improvement is likely or possible and they then tend to focus on the belief that death will be preferable to life. So, given that it's sensible to assume that there will be some people who may already be severely emotionally suffering, and the added factors about the pandemic and implications of the lockdowns will make those concerns even more pronounced. We know globally that the WHO estimates there may be 1 million suicidal deaths per year, although there's a wide range of margin of error in this estimate and the WHO have warned that this suicidal death rate has been on the increase for some time. In the UK on average the adult suicidal death rate is approximately just under 7,000 deaths per year which equates to 10 suicidal deaths per 100,000 of the adult population. It is, as in most countries, higher for men than for women, roughly with a ratio of three suicidal deaths for males for every one suicidal death for females. It's currently 16 suicidal deaths per 100,000 of the male population and five suicidal deaths per 100,000 of the female population. And this is usually due to the distinctly more visceral methods used by men in their suicidal attempts. UK suicide rates were genuinely reducing year on year from the 1990s onwards up until 2007, when they began increasing again. Some very high quality research has shown that in Europe and North America, the various policies of austerity that were used to combat the global recession that started in 2007 actually resulted in suicidal death increases of between 45 to 6.5% in various countries resulting in an additional 10,000 suicidal deaths per year in Western countries. The biggest sources of distress leading to suicidal death still remains those of jobs loss, followed by home repossession, and then followed by getting into debt beyond means of repayment. It's plain to see that the coronavirus epidemic, the global responses used and the economic impacts that will likely lead to a significant increase in suicidal deaths may continue to occur long after any lockdown is lifted. You've been listening to the You're Crazy Professor, But It Might Just Work amazing podcast. Although this is a very gloomy and pessimistic prediction, I hope this has been useful. I hope it's been interesting.